Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we continue to navigate the new normal. The arts have so much to do with our quality of life in Atlanta, from music and theater to art and dance. We are never at a loss for entertainment. Loss of revenue is what arts groups have experienced since the shutdown. Today, we'll hear the results of an economic impact study on Atlanta's arts organizations. The Atlanta Symphony is among those institutions hard hit. The executive director says she believes social distancing has brought the ASO closer together than ever before. More on the Atlanta Symphony later this hour. First, Winston Churchill once said, history is inescapable. It studies the past and the legacies of the past in the present. It connects things through time and encourages its students to take a long view of such connections. All people and peoples are living histories. The Atlanta History Center preserves and interprets subjects affecting the lives of our diverse city. On their website, you'll see an invitation, an open invitation to come make history. Joining us now via Zoom are Sheffield Hale, the president and CEO, along with the Atlanta History Center's Ryan Nix Glenn, leader of marketing and brand experience department. Welcome. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Thank you, Lois. Yeah, so am I. Sheffield, if we ever needed a reminder that history occurs in the present, the coronavirus pandemic has provided it. How has the Atlanta History Center adapted to the new normal? Well, you're exactly right. You know, this is a stop, look, and listen moment, right? We've literally stopped. And, and it does help us get a little bit more perspective and that's one of the things the History Center is, tries to provide is perspective and methods of getting perspective. So we're already a little of the way there. But the way we've adapted is we're trying to collect in real time how people feel about what's going on around them, what they see. And that's a really a rare thing for historians to be able to do is to collect in the moment. You know, you thinking back on 20 years later, and your memory is different. Maybe it's rosy or maybe it's better or worse than it actually was or how you felt at the time. But we're getting those documents and those feelings in the moment. And that's what our Corona Collective is about. The Corona Collective. Have you spoken with colleagues from other history centers around the country who are doing something similar? 
Absolutely. You're seeing this throughout the country. New York Historical Society, Chicago History Center, others are, are doing exactly the same thing. It's because it's a way that we can all enhance our archives, but also reach people in the current time in a way that helps them understand and recognize the moment that we're going through. So what have you received from Atlantans in terms of adding to the Corona Collective? Well, we've received uh, letters from, or documents from nurses in ER about what they go through. And we're, we're seeking more of that kind of information. You know, we've seen diaries, we're, we're getting pictures and uh, we're getting promised artifacts. Uh, we're not out collecting artifacts now, but we're, we're looking for, for people to sequester them. And then once they're out of quarantine, we'll come get them or they have them delivered. What are people collecting as representative of this moment? Well, we're, you know, looking for items that reflect how they feel in, in the moment, that tell a story. If there is one, we'd like to know about it. Uh, we're also getting photographs, for example, of one of our former trustees and a photograph of him and his wife, all the puzzles that they have put together in the last month. There are all different ways that people are going to remember this crisis, um, some trivial and some very profound. Yes, and among the profound, are you receiving stories? Are you collecting oral histories at the moment? We are, and uh, because people can, you know, can record them and send them to us through our website, and uh, we're also, uh, but we're getting, we're getting people writing letters about what their experiences are. And particularly the ones that are, are really relevant are the ones that are people on the front line and what they've seen, how to deal with the separation of uh, family members from those who are dying. There's a lot out there, a lot we're going to collect, and uh, we're looking for more. The Atlanta History Center has long been a destination for avid readers with the many events featuring authors. With Shelter in Place, what has become of those popular book talks? Well, we've taken them online, and we're having them uh, moderated and, uh, and then available. You can, you can go online and, and listen, and then if you, if you miss it, then it'll be available to you on our website. Oh, that's great. So um, it's not a one-time deal. You are recording it and the author interviews are available for viewing. Right, and there, and there are opportunities for questions. And so it's like a real-time event. Last one we had, last week we had 90 people. Wow. And they stayed the whole time. And what I see this happening in the future is we're going to be probably changing the way we do our author talks. We'll have in-person and also have some of them virtual and maybe combinations. We're just going to have to see how it works and what, what comes out of this. It's forcing us to do things in new and different ways and, and experiment, and it's all good. Much of the excitement the Atlanta History Center provides is experiential, living history. How do you engage visitors with your doors closed and no one in the museum? Well, one of the ways you do that is by recognizing that we are more than just a physical space and that we deliver our mission in multiple ways. But to your point, so we have, a, we have a museum, we have gardens, and we have an archives, but at bottom, we're an archive. And the issue in our mission is to get our information out. So one way we can do it is by doing it in our location, and we will continue to do that. We'll do it better, and maybe we'll have to do it in smaller groupings It's for some period of time. But also, we're, we're recording a lot of those experiences of our, our actors, and then we're going to have them available on the website. And then the third leg of this stool of how we deliver information is going to communities and doing events in the community. And so we are already working on delivering our mission all these different ways, digitally, on our campuses, and locally. And this is just going to make us be better about how we do that. So experientially, you'll be able to do it, see it on the website currently, but later on, we'll still have it on our campus, and then we'll be bringing it to the communities as well. Ryan, I understand that you 
are very involved in the online community engagement and all things digital at the History Center. Have you noticed a different type of engagement now that the History Center is essentially an online destination? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, you know, we've been, our doors have been closed for upwards of five weeks and engagement in the beginning was, was quite a flurry. I think with most cultural institutions, you know, not just in Atlanta, but, but nationally overnight, we all became digital institutions and families had access to content, not just ours, but everyone's. It felt very frenzied in the beginning. And now it's it's starting to feel like um, more substantive and um, people are interested in having an online experience, but then also being able to translate that to a tangible space, right? To bring it online. Kids now are spending most of their days looking at screens, doing school. So the last thing they want to do is spend their extracurricular time also on screen. So we have been adjusting. We feel like it's our responsibility rather to adjust and to develop content and experiences that, to Sheffield's point earlier, that bring perspective. For instance, last Friday at 10 a.m., we've been partnering with about a dozen other institutions across Atlanta with the Museums at Home initiative. And on Fridays at 10 a.m., we post a family-friendly online experience that people can come at the same time every week and get a deeper dive into our respective areas. Uh, So for instance, last Friday, we shared at 10 o'clock our blog post about uh, the history of the census. And the call to action was to go online and and participate since this was the first time in the 230-year history that the census is available online. And we had a blog post that corresponded with it that, that gives you a little bit more history. So to answer your question, people, I think, have the shift in, in scenery and the change of pace has allowed people to get a little more intimate with our content and spend more time with it. And that's something we're going to lean into moving forward. For sure, this isn't, to Sheffield's point earlier, it's not something that um, is new to the pandemic. We were already headed in this direction, but it's given us the opportunity to really kind of flex our muscles and, and have a little bit more fun with it um, while we're all at home. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Mary Pat Matheson about Field Trip Fridays and the Atlanta Museums at Home, which you are a part of. One thing that caught my eye that the History Center is offering is the Civil Rights Toolkit. Would you tell us about that? Sure. We're using it Field Trip Friday as kind of the vehicle to share it, but it is something that our education team was working on prior to the pandemic. And it's really fascinating what they've been doing. It's what we've published so far is just part one, and it is focused on the Children's March, um, stories from the Birmingham Children's Crusade um, in the 1960s. It's segmented by grade level, um, and there is a video component to each segment along with an activity that has either make your own instruments or um, write your own song. Uh, It's about digital storytelling, and there's writing prompts and art activities. Um, It's really substantive, and uh, another good example of your question earlier of how people have the time and bandwidth to start really experiencing the content we have to offer in a new way. Hmm. We don't know when it will be safe to gather again in public spaces such as museums. Have you thought about how reopening the Atlanta History Center would occur? Yes, we we think about it every day and our decisions are are changing every day. But yes, we we think we will um, reopen first by showcasing our gardens. And it was something that goes way to gardens are, are fabulous. And, and sometimes they've been overshadowed by our museum and the Swan House, which sits in the middle of the 33 acres of gardens that we have. So that's a natural place for us to start. You can uh, be apart together and we can have, and we can disperse a lot of people through those guard, beautiful gardens. And, and we use this as a great opportunity to start there and then work our way back into our, 
our building as it seems to be more, more appropriate to do that. I think congratulations are in order. You just received an impressive award. Oh, yes, we did. Excellence in Restoration from the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation for the Cyclorama. Um, we received an award also from the Atlanta Business Chronicle in their real estate awards for our um, excellence in restoration for our, uh, the Cyclorama as well. That project is still being recognized, and, it's, and that's wonderful. Even before the pandemic, from what you both have told us, the Atlanta History Center was creating outreach that didn't require Atlantans to come to the Buckhead campus to engage with programming. That's correct. If you think about it, the, a museum is a you know, 19th century or mid 20th century model where folks have to come to you to uh, have your mission occur. And we've been working hard to make sure that we are agnostic as to whether people come to us, they get their content online, or we take it to them in their own community. Because we think that those are the ways that people want to receive the information. And we're going to do everything we can to have them come to our campus. But that's not the be all and end all of our mission. Our mission is to provide that information that we have in our archives and that we have um, collected um, in three dimensions in our, for our museum and deliver it to people so that they can learn more about their city and each other and connect to each other and make a better community. That's why we exist. And whether they come to our campus or not, it's not relevant into how we accomplish our mission. This pandemic has had us focus even more on that reality. Sheffield, that is very progressive thinking. You're certainly not discouraging people from visiting the building, but I applaud how forward thinking and far-reaching you are in that attitude. It's, it's something that we've, we've realized a long time ago. We started as an archives, and archives essentially is here to deliver content, to collect it, organize it, and have it available for you for free. Then we have a delivery mechanism where we added a museum so people could come learn about the content, and we could bring in other content that's not in our archives. Then the internet came along, and then we started digitizing and providing information to people for free. And then we realized that not everybody could come to our museum or could go, go on the internet or had the time, and so we needed to go to them. The Atlanta History Center CEO, Sheffield Hale, with his colleague, Ryan Nix Glenn. There's more information about their digital programming and Corona Collective on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. A new survey reveals that Atlanta arts organizations collectively will lose more than $10 million during this shutdown. Laura Smith is the managing director of Dad's Garage Theater. She joined me via Zoom to discuss the survey findings and why she led the effort. I found myself over the past, I don't know, three or four weeks, I was kind of dragged on or unaware of how much time has passed, but I found myself, I kept saying, we need data, we need this survey, we need to be able to share kind of a snapshot of what's happening in the sector. And I finally realized I either had to stop saying it or I had to do the survey. So that's how we got here today. Well, it is comprehensive. How were the arts organizations chosen? It is comprehensive. And all of the questions were optional. There were only two questions that were mandatory. And one was in public sharing of this data, are you comfortable with us saying you were involved? And the other was, in private sharing of this data, are you comfortable with us sharing your specific answers? And then everything else was optional. And we reached far and wide. We wanted everyone in Metro Atlanta to participate. And because we were um, partnering with the Atlanta Regional Commission on this, that included the 10 counties that the ARC represents. And so it was a really tight turnaround because, as I mentioned, I'd been wanting to get, I, I'd been talking about it for weeks and weeks. And then 
it was only when I had gotten enough sort of done for dad's garage that I could think about it. So once we had our SBA loan applications in and unemployment figured out. And so I sent the survey out on a Thursday with a Saturday evening deadline. (laughs) Yeah, I know, which is insane that we had so much involvement. Of course, I ended up extending it to early Monday morning for people who are a little behind. And so there's uh, an email list of folks who got the Bloomberg grant. Um, So that includes, you know, all, I think it was 43 institutions that Bloomberg um, granted locally. And then there's also a list of Atlanta arts leaders. And then I also shared it with um, other leaders in the community to kind of share it with their lists. So C4 Atlanta was circulating it. The Atlanta Regional Commission sent it to all of the um, arts leaders of Metro Atlanta alumni. It just got kind of spread far and wide, and I'm sure multiple people got it too many times, but that meant that we had a great response rate, because I think everyone recognizes that this data is needed, and so they were eager to help out, and that's why I think we see so much data, too, again, recognizing that all of it was optional, but people wanted to help to kind of spread the word of what's actually happening. Well, again, 43 arts organizations were represented. This, so the survey actually had 59. 43 was the Bloomberg. And we've reopened the survey and more people have been filling it out. I don't know what we'll do with that data. Because to me, I wanted it to be more of a litmus test, like the beginning of a conversation. So for me, it's kind of, you know, raising the flag and saying, we need to be talking about this. And hopefully giving a platform for people to start having those conversations. People have asked me, you know, are we going to do another survey? And it's hard to say because, again, the intent was to just kind of raise the visibility for this. And so there's still so much uncertainty around how long this could last and when it's going to be safe for public gatherings at the scale that the arts sector requires. And so I think another survey is definitely a possibility if it makes sense and what's needed to kind of tell this story. For those who may not be familiar with Bloomberg Philanthropies. Would you describe what the charity does for these communities? Yeah, so they came in probably about a year and a half ago now. And they, as I said, granted 43 institutions funding. And it was the equivalent of around 10% of their annual operating budget spread out over two fiscal years. And then it also included a number of sessions, training sessions, and a consultant that, that is sort of on call for you. And the training sessions are led by the DeVos Institute. Michael Kaiser, who has written so many books on what it means to run an arts organization, is kind of, if there was fame in running arts organizations, he would be the most famous. And he came in and um, was kind of teaching us best practices on all things arts management. And so that's been incredibly helpful. Our last in-person session was actually I think in March, I think in early March, maybe late February, but we all still have our consultants. And I know people have really talked about the value of having those consultants right now to sort of be thinking about not just crisis, but then what does relief and what does a ramping up of reopening look like? Oh, yeah. In the data compiled, I saw that 96% of respondents in the survey expressed the need for additional funding in the form of an unrestricted grant. How would an unrestricted grant benefit the organization? Well, you know, right now, when there's so much uncertainty, it's really hard to do a project grant because we don't know when we're going to be, when it's going to be safe to reopen. And so unless you're looking at digital projects, which I think a lot of people are still figuring out, An unrestricted grant allows you to spend those funds in the way that's best for the organization and allows you to focus on fulfilling the mission rather than working on a very specific project, which again, with all the uncertainty, it's just, it's hard to plan the same way as you might in another timeframe. And would you explain how the size of each organization's budget resulted in the amount they would lose in revenue? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we allow people to pick budget size buckets rather than asking for their specific bucket. And 44 of the 59 institutions entered in the data on how much money they were anticipating that they would lose. And the average loss for across all of those was 241,000. But then when you break that up by um, budget category, 
you know, for organizations with budgets under 250,000, they're looking at losing 10% or more of their budget with an average of 25,000. And then when you go up to organizations with budgets between a million and 2 million, you're looking at more like 345,000. And so it really varies by organization. And the other thing that's interesting about that data is in the survey, we just said, how much are you anticipating losing? We didn't say in a particular time frame. And so I think everyone's also imagining this uh, crisis and this loss to be a different, to be different. And so one of the other questions we asked people is um, when do they anticipate reopening so we could see kind of what their marker of that is. And we have people anticipating anywhere from summer to 2021. And so, you know, I've been asked, how can we extrapolate this data and kind of estimate what the whole region's loss would be? And I think it's probably quite impossible because, because again, of the uncertainty of the length of time and all of the different varying things with budgets. And still, you know, the people are learning uh, daily at whether they've gotten uh, PPP loans or other relief programs. 30% of the organizations surveyed were able to maintain staff without making any changes. How did they manage that? I think it's a variety of things. So one is at organizations of 200, with budgets of $250,000 or less, you might be looking at um, volunteer-led organizations. And so then maintaining staff means, yes, we still have no staff. And then, you know, we also have um, organizations that have a small crew that's, that's on full-time year-round, and then they hire for projects. And so they might be in between projects. And so whereas you have an institution when, when they're running programming, maybe they have 30 people that they work with, but in between programming, they have four. And so it might just have been a timing thing where they happened to not have additional people on staff. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing that was really interesting to see is that 64% started the crisis with the financial safety net. And I think, you know, some folks are using that financial safety net to get through to keep employees and independent contractors paid, maybe in the hopes that PPP will come through and some of those payments will be forgivable in the long term. Yeah, always important to have savings. Or Absolutely. Reserve. Absolutely. Laura, would you mind just saying what PPP is? Yes, sorry. Stands for? PPP is the Paycheck Protection Program, and it's the SBA fund that is two and a half times of your average monthly payroll. And then it can be forgivable if you use it within a 60 day window for things like payroll, but also utilities, um, rent. Um, there's just a number of things that it can be forgivable for. And so that's the most appealing of the programs out there because then it, uh, it ends up acting like a grant for organizations. We're living in a time of crisis and tragedy. Why is it essential to fund the arts community during this time? You know, I think um, when you look at what people are turning to right now, you see them turning to the arts. They're listening to music. They're watching incredible things uh, streaming, either digitally or on, on their televisions. And the arts play a vital role, not just in economic development, but also in our quality of life. And so supporting those institutions is going to mean that we have a robust life to go back to when we're ready to reopen. At Dad's Garage, our mission is to transform people, communities, and perspectives through laughter. And that's more important now than ever. And I, what I have seen is every arts organization doubling down on their mission and figuring out how to continue reaching people through the arts, building communities, in spite of all of this crisis. And why are the arts vital to keeping Atlanta's economy thriving? People may not be aware of this. Yeah, so the arts have about a $719 million economic impact on the metro Atlanta economy um, with about 23,000 full-time employees and I believe 32 million in local government revenue. So when you think about arts organizations, obviously, when we're doing things, we're purchasing paint, we're purchasing supplies. But the thing you might not think about is our patrons are going to, well, the dad's patrons are going to get a pizza at a matzo before the show and then a drink at church after the show. So, you know, there's, there's all these other things that, that happen around entertainment, babysitters, if you're traveling hotels. And so you start to see that it's a huge 
driver of tourism and economic impact and how it kind of drives so many supporting organizations as well. Laura Smith is the managing director of Dad's Garage Theatre. You can find the results of the survey on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Among those arts organizations surveyed was the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. We'll check in with them after a short break. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Have you heard an interview on City Lights you'd like to listen to again or share with a friend? WABE.org slash citylights is the place to find today's interviews, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at wabe.org slash citylights. And thanks for listening. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra was celebrating its 75th anniversary season when the corona pandemic forced the shutdown of all public spaces in March. Last week, the ASO canceled the remaining performances in its classical season, which was scheduled to conclude on June 14th. Jennifer Barlament is the executive director of the ASO. She joins us via Zoom with the orchestra's associate principal cellist, Daniel Laufer. Welcome. Thank you, Lois. It's so great to be here today and um, always wonderful to hear your voice. Well, thank you. This move was very difficult, no doubt, and some of the most exciting concerts were scheduled for the spring. Would you tell us about the process that led to your decision? Sure, Lois. So clearly we were in a situation where we hadn't been able to get together for a while, and it was becoming clear, even though the state of Georgia is beginning to open up a little bit at a time that we're still a long way from being able to have sort of business as usual for an orchestra, which means, you know, the ability to bring together a hundred or more people on stage, as well as um, thousands of people in the audience. And so we realized very sadly that um, we would have to go ahead and make the decision to cancel the remainder of the season. It's meant that we've lost a lot of things that we're really looking forward to, including a trip to Carnegie Hall to perform Beethoven's Mrs. Solemnus with the symphony and the chorus, as well as the first performances ever in Atlanta of the full opera Tristan Isolde by Richard Wagner. Um, so we, it was a sad decision to make, but it was, it was very clear that it was the right thing for the protection of our musicians and for the safety of our patrons. Indeed, people who miss the live music probably can visualize now how closely situated the musicians must be on stage. Danny, what do you estimate the distance between each of the musicians is maybe 12 inches? <laughs> Ideally, as close as possible. Um, yeah. the, the closer we sit together, um, I think the easier we can hear ourselves, not only next to each other, but also across the stage. So for a really good ensemble, being less, uh, probably a foot between myself and my left and the right, as far as Rainer and Xing Wei on my right. So it is important to be close. And we certainly, all of us in the orchestra, really 
miss making music together. Um, I described it to some people as it's kind of like a fish out of water. Um, it's, it's, and we've been doing this, you know, since most of us since teenager years or even younger. And we definitely are very much looking forward to getting to the point where at least as an orchestra, we can get back together and start making some music again. Mm, well, those of us who are music lovers in this city certainly miss that exciting music making. Have you estimated the financial impact on the orchestra? Is that possible to determine, Jennifer? Yeah, in the near term, yeah. We will have lost by the end of the season just a little bit over $3 million in revenue. And I think the bigger question for us is what this means for the fall. With the great cooperation and very close uh, communication with our musicians, been able to reduce expenses as much as we possibly can. Obviously, that's a challenge for us because most of the symphony's expenses go toward personnel. We have a large base of employees, 88 positions in the orchestra, and a little over 50 people in the office as well to support those um, rehearsals and performances. All we can do right now is ask for the community to support us philanthropically, which has been going really well. We've seen some amazing examples of generosity from members of the community and our donors have been very supportive during this um, challenging period. But I won't kid you, it's going to be very different than the next, I think, year or so will be very different than what we had anticipated, both financially and musically. Danny, you are president of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Players Association. Management and union are not always in agreement, to say the least. What were you hearing from musicians about pay cuts, about the steps being taken to mitigate the financial loss? Sure. Well, it goes without saying that, you know, this pandemic has hit everybody very hard in our industry, probably even more hard simply because we, what we do requires a public, right? So it's been hard hearing what's been happening across the country with many orchestras. I would say though, we've had some difficulties in the past, but the way the ASO as an organization has worked together with musicians, staff, certainly our amazing board and other donors, I think we all feel like we're working together as much as we can to help preserve, quite frankly, our institution until we can get back to work. And I think Jennifer would probably echo the same to say that I I don't think we've ever worked closer together and have a really a mission of making sure that we can emerge on the other side of this, you know, as healthy as possible. We obviously do need support. But I think we're all on the same page and trying to get through this unprecedented situation. Yeah, Jennifer, that must have made it much easier for you and the board that the musicians were in agreement with the tough decisions you had to make. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I do think it's been, to echo what Danny said, it's been challenging across the country. A number of our colleague institutions and other orchestras who also rely um, heavily on earned revenue, that's what we call it, ticket sales, have had to make much more um, drastic decisions than we were in a position to have to make. So that made it a little bit easier, but still it's never easy to talk about, you know, people's livelihoods in that way. And I think everybody's completely aligned behind Um, the great value of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and um, how much we um, are strongly desiring to do everything we possibly can to serve the community. And getting creative about that and staying in close contact, you know, again, to echo what Danny said, I'm not sure we've ever been closer as an institution, ironically. And so I think times of crisis often show you what you're made of as a group of people and certainly very grateful to be part of this institution right now. It's very heartening to hear. How can the public help? 
Well, there are a couple of things. You know, one of them is continue supporting us financially and also, you know, continue supporting all of your favorite nonprofits because they're all experiencing similar things. You know, for us, it's a bit more acute simply because we do rely quite heavily on ticket sales and that avenue of contributions is uh, no longer available to us. You can go to ASO.org and find a way to donate. Um, Also, we're working hard to continue to make music, albeit from our homes during this period, and also continue to share the music of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra um, while the stage is dark. We have a lot of great recordings available on our website, and we've really pivoted to creating what we call the ASO's virtual stage. So if people want to continue experiencing great music, uh, great performances, they can go to the ASO's virtual stage and click enjoy, listen, comment, you know, send us notes if there's something you particularly enjoy. Uh, one of the things that we've been doing during this period is really enhancing our digital presence. And um, we're delighted that uh, we're working with WABE to make our radio broadcasts available through our website for streaming on demand. Um, and also, We have a number of concerts that have never been released before, have never been heard outside the concert hall. So, for example, this Thursday evening, April 30th at 8 o'clock, we have a concert that happened on February the 16th uh, with the Morehouse Glee Club at Morehouse that will become available for streaming. And we encourage people to check that out. It was a really fantastic concert. Yes, I have to say that WABE is so proud of our association with the symphony. We've been broadcasting now for 46 years. We've been broadcasting the ASO classical seasons. We used to call them the master seasons. Now they're the classical seasons. Are there chamber performances? Are there individual performances available as well by the musicians? Absolutely. There are a lot of great uh, chamber ensemble performances available um, through our Facebook page, linkable from the ASO virtual stage, all recorded you know, before this all happened. And there's also a lot of great interviews and um, features on the individual members of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. So I think that's one of the positives that's come out of this whole um, pandemic is we've had a great chance to feature some of our musicians as individuals, hear their voices, hear their stories. And there's a lot of that material on the virtual stage as well. Performers need an audience to complete their role. How are the musicians coping with self-isolation, Danny? You know, that's a great question. We're still obviously practicing. It's a little more difficult to practice, though, when you don't have specific goals and we're so goal-oriented on a weekly basis. As far as music making is concerned, some of us have been involved in some projects just doing, you know, some duos or trios or quartets or even something slightly larger than that. And, you know, getting used to video editing the different parts and see how that sounds together. But it's not a replacement for live music, but it is still a project that people enjoy doing to kind of feel productive and share something also with our public. But outside of that, you know, we as an orchestra have also been week, uh, really on a weekly basis a meeting. You know, we have Zoom meetings. We check up with each other. Um, everybody's healthy, thankfully. And, you know, we just try to keep everybody well informed. A lot of us, you know, are wondering as the next few weeks go by, at what point might we be able to gather at least as a small ensemble or maybe something even larger as hopefully the curve declines because we're really itching to get together and play music, even if it is doing it without an audience, but maybe live streaming it. And I think a lot of people would be very excited to do that as long as we all you know, know that it's safe to do so. Jennifer, Have you discussed what reopening might look like, I guess, possibly for the fall? Yeah, of course, at this point, any conversations about what coming back to work looks like takes a a lot of imagination. We also have 
a wonderful resource who's one of our board members, um, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who's an international infectious disease expert and is deeply engaged in our conversations about what a comeback strategy might look like. And as Danny said, you know, we look at the question of when the musicians can come together again and experience the great joy of making music together separately from when we can bring a large audience together to hear them. So first we've thought about, you know, potentially either later this summer or in the early fall, bringing the orchestra together for rehearsals and performance, which we could then live stream. And then uh, we've been also thinking hard about what all of this means for coming back to public performances and how to make that safe. And that's a little bit less clear to us right now, but the whole concept of, you know, letting the orchestra come together again is is very much in the forefront of our minds. Mm. Danny, are the musicians in touch with music director Robert Spano? I think a number of us over the last, you know, seven, eight weeks have on occasion had conversations, you know, with him and like everybody else we check up on each other see how everybody's doing and i know that it's been really sad not to be able to go to carnegie this spring with robert it was something that he was really looking forward to and you know we're entering into his last year next fall it'll be his last year as music director i think it's disappointing obviously we know why everything had to happen but it's it's disappointing not to have had robert do certain things this spring. And we certainly hope, I mean, nobody knows anything for sure right now, but we certainly hope that the coming season will enable all of us to celebrate Robert for really his tenure with the ASO. He's been a great champion of the orchestra in many different areas. And we we want to be able to celebrate that. I think he's very deserving of it. Absolutely. On a positive note, Would you tell us about the Stability Fund? Sure, I'd love to. So um, soon after all of this happened and it became clear that the financial impact on the um, symphony would be pretty big, we established what we call a Stability Fund, which is really a special fund earmarked for both supporting the institution during this um, time when we aren't able to make concerts or we might have reduced revenue. And also the, uh, the goal is to match contributions. So one of the things that we've asked uh, ticket holders to do for concerts between now and the end of June is to consider contributing back the value of their tickets to the institution as a donation rather than um, either having it be a credit going toward future tickets or even um, requesting that their money be returned. And um, the stability fund, part of the point of it was to match those contributions to really encourage people to think about giving those tickets back as contributions to the institution. And that's been very successful. It's really helped a lot once we established that fund and got the first gift. We saw the percentage of individuals contributing their tickets back go way up. And we're extremely grateful for that. We also have other donors who have contributed gifts specifically to help support the orchestra, the members of the orchestra during this period. And so we're well on our way to um, building a bit of a buffer for us so that we can continue making great music and also um, continue supporting our musicians and staff during this period. Well, this is all very encouraging. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is a crown jewel in our city's cultural life. We wish you well in your effort to deal with all of the challenges you've described and look forward to hearing you perform live in Symphony Hall as soon as safely possible. Jennifer Barlament, Danny Laufer, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Lois. And we also can't wait to get back to making music. Jennifer Barlamet is the executive director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. We heard her with associate principal cellist Danny Laufer. 
You can find more information about the ASO Virtual Stage on their website, atlantasymphony.org. And a reminder, you can hear broadcasts of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra on WABE Sunday evenings at 8. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with a look at farmers' markets during quarantine. Also, how Concrete Jungle and the Atlanta History Center Smith Farm are helping feed those in need. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and Summer Evans. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. And do check out our new podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.